Amen. In the opening six verses of James chapter 5, James has devoted time to rebuking and exposing the lives of wealthy and ungodly men who persecuted the poor and who engaged in fraudulent activities while they themselves lived lives of luxury. Now from verse 7 onwards, he turns his attentions from the afflictors to the afflicted. And in his words to the afflicted, he gives them instruction as to how they should deal with the affliction that they are facing. And he ultimately encourages them to look for a day of deliverance which will one day come in Christ Jesus. Now in terms of dealing with the trials in our own personal lives, whether they come in the future or whether we are going through them at this moment in time, I think James offers some edifying encouragements to the believers that he is writing to. And I believe that there are some practical lessons that we as Christians can learn when it comes to the issue of dealing with trials. And this is highlighted especially in verses 7 and 8 of James chapter 5. It says there, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And this morning I want to take James chapter 5 and verses 7 to 8 as my text. And with these thoughts in mind, I want you to consider this topic with me this morning of how Christians should respond to trials. How Christians should respond to trials. I want you to see firstly that we should respond with composure. Our text says at the beginning of verse 7, be patient. And it says at the beginning of verse 8, be ye also patient. Now that word patient, it carries a stronger meaning than our everyday usage of the word. It literally means to be long-tempered in contrast to being short-tempered. And it carries with it the idea of restraining any anger that we would have towards anyone, no matter how much they injure us or provoke us. And that word for patient is translated in Luke 18 and 7 as bear long, and in Hebrews 6 and 15 as endured. So James is telling these believers in light of their trials that they ought to be patient. He is telling them in light of the fact that they had persecutors that they were very simply to endure it. That they were to bear it. That they were not to fight fire with fire if you want to use that expression. And child of God, our sufferings may be long. Our sufferings may be sharp. But it is the duty of the people of God to be patient during these times. When we, we ought not to lack patience or to be short-tempered. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Ghost. Thomas Manton said concerning this verse, that carnal men are not patient, but stupid and careless. And so when we aren't patient during trials, when we are short-tempered, or whatever it might be, it essentially amounts to carnality. When trials come, when we are caused injuries by other people during our afflictions, friends, we must not let carnality take over. Now think about it very practically, Christian. When you are under severe pressure in your life, when you are heartbroken, when you are hurt, when you are angry, when you are experiencing some form of negative emotion because of your circumstances, you aren't thinking straight. 
your thinking becomes distorted. And you're more prone to saying something or doing something which you wouldn't normally do. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever been sad? Have you ever been overcome with emotion? And you say something, you do something, and then about an hour later you say, I wish I hadn't have said that. I wish I hadn't have done that thing. That's why James says to be patient. Because when we aren't patient, we, we act out of character. Now think about it this way. You might go into church and if someone walks past you and doesn't say hello during times of severe pressure, you misinterpret that as them belittling you and you say, well, I'm going to confront them for that. You may misinterpret someone's words as a sly dig and then you have a sly dig back. In the home, you might lose your temper over something trivial. Believer, maybe you would even commit an act of violence because of your lack of patience. And it has happened before in the lives of Christians. And this is why James in the word of God encourages us to be patient. It is for our spiritual good. It is to ensure that we maintain a godly life and a good testimony. And that we don't do something which we will, which we will regret further down the line. And is this not a challenge to us today as God's people? Christian, are you going through a trial at this moment in time? Is your life an emotional, roller, uh, an emotional roller coaster? Well, I encourage you this morning to be patient. And I think the Lord Jesus Christ presents us with a perfect example of patience. If you want to turn to Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Isaiah 53 and 7. And it says there concerning the Lord Jesus, He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And what was Christ doing? Christ was enduring the trials he was facing. Trials which were infinitely worse than ours. Yet he didn't speak a single word against those who injured him. He remained silent. He endured. He exercised patience. He submitted to his Father's will. And believer, in the midst of your trial, you ought to follow the example of Christ. Endure. Be patient. Submit to the will of God in sending this trial in your life because to submit to the will of God in this regard is to be like Jesus Christ therefore it is our duty to exercise patience and James offers an illustration or a further reason for patience if you will for look what he says in verse 7 of our text concerning the husbandman it says there behold the husbandman the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Now James mingles this simple illustration into his exhortation because he wants to hammer home this principle of patience. Now the early rain, it would have been the autumn rain which fell after the sowing of the crop and it germinated the seed. And then after that the latter rain would have come and it would have helped to swell the grain before the harvest time. And knowing that these rains would come in their good time, what did the farmer do? The farmer faithfully sowed, and he would have patiently waited for the harvest. He would have toiled in the field. 
He would have labored long and hard during all types of weather. He would have endured the hardship that farming brings. And he did so because he knew that it would, that it would yield precious fruit, which was, of course, the harvest. And so what James is saying to the believers is, he's saying this, Christian, if the farmer will toil, if the farmer will labor, if he will endure hardship for a season in order that he might yield the harvest, ought we not as Christians to do the same concerning our trials? What do we endure for as God's people? We don't endure for a mere physical harvest. We endure for that which is infinitely greater than a physical harvest. James 1 and 12 says that we endure for a crown of life. And so James is saying this. He's saying, Christian, if a farmer will endure for mere corn, ought you not to endure for a crown of life? If corn is precious to a farmer and worth much patience, how much, how much more then are the precious fruits of our patience as God's people? Now the context of this exhortation to be patient is made in light of the fact that the Lord is coming. We will consider that in more depth a little later on. But in a more immediate sense, patience during trials produces for us precious fruit, namely in cultivating Christ-likeness. We alluded to the fact that being patient is following Christ's example, but the fruits of this can be Christ-likeness. Psalm 119 and 71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And Christian, herein is the ultimate end of our afflictions. Herein is the ultimate purpose of our afflictions, the ultimate end of our salvation. It is Christ-likeness. It is to be like him. Do you desire to be like him? Because God is working in you. As a child of God, he is working in you to produce conformity to the image of his Son. In other words, he is sanctifying you. And that entails bringing you through the floods of affliction. Romans 8 and 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. We have been saved we have been chosen in Christ in order that we might be like Christ. Now that's a radical thought. Especially in the context of this world. People don't like to suffer. People can't really deal with suffering. They don't see the point in suffering. They don't see the purpose or the end of suffering. Yet God's people, we can see the end of suffering. But we will be like Christ. And it is radical to say this in the context of the world. But if your trials make you more like Christ, then they are for your good as a child of God. I think Charles Spurgeon really saw this in his life because he said concerning his own trials, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Spurgeon was able to embrace his trials because he knew God is making me more like Christ. And it was his ultimate desire, not only to be closer to Christ, but to be like Christ. 
And therefore, Christian, if you're facing trials today, remember it is your duty as a child of God to be patient and to endure, but also be encouraged. Because if you're facing trials, God is actively working in your life. He is working to make you more like Christ. He is sanctifying you. There are many people who profess to be saved and they say that they never have trouble. They never have trials. They never have depression. They never have illnesses. They say they never go through any of these things. And I wonder, are they saved at all? Or is God working in that person's life? Remember, if you're going through a trial... God is sanctifying you and one day you will enjoy the fullness of your salvation. In light of our trials, we should respond with composure. But consider secondly with me that we should respond with constancy. Verse 8 of our text says, establish your hearts. Now that word establish, it presents the idea of setting something in a certain position. And it's been translated in Luke 22 and 32 as strengthen. And the idea being presented is that we remain steadfast in our faith. And we don't allow our faith to falter during trials. And establishing the heart, it really underpins patience. Or it is the foundation of patience. Because strengthening the heart during trials will aid you in your endeavor to exercise this Christian virtue of patience. And James illustrates this in verse 9 of chapter 5. Because he says there, grudge not one against another, brethren. That word grudge literally means to groan. And it is a groaning which comes from the heart. And James is saying this. He's saying during trials, your heart is prone to groaning. When you're under pressure, you groan and you grumble in your heart. Even the most sanctified and the most godly believer, uh, their heart can become frayed around the edges because of groaning. Even the most godly believer can suffer from a faltering faith during times of trial. And when we allow that to happen, friends, and when we allow such discontentment to be entertained in our hearts, it can manifest itself in a lack of patience. This is why I said that establishing the heart underpins patience, because lack of patience during affliction is rooted in a heart which is faltered. And Christian, I think it would be true to say that what we say and what we do in this life, it reflects what's really going on in the heart. Matthew 15 and 19 says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. And it is with a profound understanding of man's heart that the Holy Spirit, through James, tells believers, establish your heart. You're going through affliction. You need to strengthen your faith. Get right to the source of your potential lack of patience and your potential faltering faith and ensure that it does not begin to fray or to falter. Because Christian, once your heart fails you, everything else crumbles around you. When your faith goes, your hope goes. When your hope goes, you just stop trying altogether. And when you just stop trying, uh, you become easy prey for the devil and you succumb to carnality such as lack of patience. And what happens then? You backslide. And you make a mess of your life. And that can have ca catastrophic consequences for you and for those around you. 
And this is why James says, establish your hearts. When you're going through a trial, strengthen your faith. Lest you fall. Unless you make a mess of your life. And again, I think the greatest example of establishing the heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 9, and it's the verse 51. Luke 9 and 51. And it says, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that word steadfastly in Luke 9.51, it comes from the same word establish in James 5 and 8. And so what did Christ do? Christ steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew that in Jerusalem awaited a trial, blood, sweat and tears, torture, even a violent death. Pressure was mounting in him. His enemies were growing. But what did he do? He established his heart. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He exercised such bravery. And he faced his trials head on. And why did he face his trials head on? Because he knew something else. He knew that beyond the cross, he knew that beyond the grave was the resurrection. He knew that beyond the grave was the ascension when he would go to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And he knew that beyond that was the glorious building of his church, which would ultimately lead to his glory. And so what did he do in light of these things? He remained steadfast. He knew what the future held. And he didn't uh, yield to the pressures around him. Friends, his heart did not falter. And we as God's people, we too can steadfastly endure what is before us. What we are going through at this very moment in time. We can face it head on because we know what the future holds. We know what is to come. And James gives believers this exhortation to establish their hearts in light of the fact that they had an eye on the Lord's return. In light of the fact that Christ had promised he would come again. Which of course we will consider in a few moments. But we must ask ourselves, in light of the fact that we are exhorted to establish our hearts, how do we do it? Maybe you say, well my faith is faltering. My faith is failing. How do I stop it from failing? Well, I think the author of Hebrews gives us the answer. It says in Hebrews 12 and 2, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Believer in Christ, is your faith faltering? Well, then Christ is the key. It is from Christ that we draw strength. It is from Him that we get our nourishment. He is the bread of life. He is the one who gives the living water. Philippians 4 and 13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And further than this, God has given us means whereby we can run to Christ and whereby we can draw from Him. He has given us prayer, whether it be the public place of prayer or the private place of prayer. He has given us His Word, which we can read at home or hear preached on the Lord's Day or through the week. He has given us the sacraments or the ordinances of the church. He has given us means whereby we can be strengthened. 
Unbeliever, if you want your faith to be strong, then you must make use of these means on a regular basis. Think about it this way. If you neglect the place of prayer, whether it be the public place or the private place, don't be surprised if your faith falters when trials come. If you never read the Word of God at home or sit under the preaching of God's Word in His house, don't be surprised if your faith falters. Because God has given us means whereby our faith can be strengthened and our hearts can be established. He has given us these means whereby we can run to Christ and we can draw strength during times of trials. And if we don't use what God has given, then we can't expect to navigate through our trials, um, through our trials successfully. These are the ordinary means of grace whereby we grow, we are fed, and we are nourished by Christ. These are the means whereby our hearts can be established. In light of our trials, we should respond with constancy. But I want you to see finally with me that we should respond with confidence. James has given us these exhortations to be patient and to establish our hearts. And we considered the fruits and the motivations for doing these things. But when we look at the context in which these exhortations are given, we see what could be deemed as the ultimate motivation for heeding these exhortations, and it is the return of Jesus Christ. Our text says in verse 7, unto the coming of the Lord. And it says in verse 8, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And this is where his argument culminates. He tells us to be patient. He tells us to establish our hearts or strengthen our faith because Christ is coming. Now, the second coming of Christ is a key New Testament doctrine. And it was certainly a doctrine which stirred the hope of God's people in the New Testament through affliction. And this is highlighted by the fact that Christ's return is referenced roughly 300 times in New Testament Scripture. So that equates to one verse in every 13 referring to the return of Jesus Christ. And there are three Greek words used for the return of Christ in the New Testament. But the one used here is a word which signifies the arrival of a king. It speaks of authority and power. And the main thrust of the word indicates a person's physical presence. So in the case of the believers that James was writing to, uh, Christ's return would mean his physical presence with them, whereby he would deal with their persecutors he would deal with their afflictors and he would rule over them and bring an end to their sorrows. An afflicted Christian, Christian going through a fiery trial at this moment in time, you need to remember this. Christ is coming again. There is no ambiguity about that statement. What happens before that, what happens during that, what happens after that is down to you to work out for yourself but there is no ambiguity about the fact that Christ is coming. He is coming to deal with our oppressors. He is coming to deal with our enemies. He is coming to execute justice upon them. But more than this, He is coming to put an end to all of your afflictions. He will one day come and He will rescue you from all of the troubles of this world and He will enable you to take possession of that kingdom and that glory which he has promised you. He is coming to complete that work.
He began in you the day that you were saved. And he is coming to enable you to enjoy the fullness of your salvation. And that day when he comes, there will be no more afflictions. They will all come to an end. Friends, when Jesus Christ comes, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sighs. There will be no more sleepless nights. No more grief. No more tiredness. No more stress. No more depression. No more runs to hospital. No more runs to care homes. No more bodily infirmity. No more parting from those that we love. For when he comes, all will be well in him. And these things will be no more. Revelation 21 and 4 says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. It's any wonder James said to the believers, Don't worry about your afflictions. Just you stay strong in your faith. And exercise patience because Christ is coming again. And he will bring an end to it all. Therefore this morning, brother or sister, if you're suffering, I want you to be encouraged. The hymn writer said there will be no dark valley when Jesus comes to gather his loved ones home. Just remember he's coming. He's coming. And unsaved friends... Christ's coming will be a glorious day for the saint of God. But for you it will be a day of total contrast because in your sin you will feel the full weight of the justice of God. He will judge you for your transgressions against his law. He will judge you for your continual rejection of him and he will sentence you to eternal damnation. This is the result of your sin. It is eternal damnation. And when Christ comes, that's it. And that's why you need to get ready for his coming. By repenting of your sin and putting your faith in him alone for your salvation. And as I conclude this message, I think we can all agree that the prospect of Christ coming again is ample motivation for us to endure our trials and to remain steadfast in our faith. Believer in Christ, I exhort you once again, be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. May God be pleased to bless his word to all of our hearts for his glory. Amen. Amen. We'll bow in a closing word of prayer, and we'll seek the Lord's blessing as we part ways. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for God's word to our hearts today. We are thankful, Lord, for these great promises which Thou hast given us. Lord, namely that promise that Christ will come again. That, Lord, when He was leaving His disciples, Lord, when they were sad that He was going to depart from them, how He encouraged them, how they were reminded by the angels on the day of His ascension that He would come again. And that he would be with them. And Lord, that's our hope today. Our hope today is that we will one day be with Christ. That we will be with him in a more, in a more immediate sense. 
Lord, that we will see him face to face and that we will be able to say to his face on that day that we love him and that we thank him for all that he has done for us. Heavenly Father, give us the grace in the meantime to endure our trials. Give us the grace, O God, to endure the onslaughts of hell. Give us the grace, O God, to live the Christian life as best as we can. And Lord, we pray that we will be strengthened in our faith and that we will be better Christians as we await the return of our Savior. Heavenly Father, do be with us as we part ways. We pray for thy blessing and mercy to abide with us. And we pray that thou would bring us to the house of God tonight again in health and in strength. And now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen.